When you begin to break down some of the key differences between legacy HR and modern HR, one of the things that really becomes a centralized trait of modern people leaders is their business acumen. Modern people executives are business operators that focus on people, and that allows them to really understand the strategy of the organization and develop people programs that really align to them in ways that can make a significant difference. And I'm really excited to be joined today by the head of people operations for Asana, Anna Binder. Anna is a seasoned HR executive with a deep HR acumen, but also a deep business acumen. And in this podcast, she talks about how she weaves those things together to develop transformative and sustainable people practices at Asana. So we are going to get into that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. Brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called the Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And today, I am very excited to be joined by the head of people operations of Asana, Anna Binder. Uh, we're going to talk about Anna's career path and some of the hyper-growth efforts that she's led at Asana and what that people program looks like when you're in that stage. So, Anna, thanks so much for coming on. Um, why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself for the listeners? Sure, Lars. Great to be here with you. Uh, my name is Anna Binder. I run people operations for Asana. Uh, I've pretty much done people operations for most of my career, uh, starting you know uh, back in the uh, late 90s, my goodness. And um, yeah, I've had the opportunity to lead HR for a number of companies going from, you know, four people to into, you know, over a thousand. And I've been at Asana for about three and a half years. Awesome. And I will make a deep mental note that uh, last name is Binder and not Binder. So I apologize for butchering that on the intro. I mean, I got no Anna problem. right and I, uh, I, I butchered Binder. Um, let's talk, you, you mentioned a little bit about your career and how that's evolved. And I, I definitely mm -hmm. want to spend a lot of time digging into what you've built at Asana, because I think you have some pretty incredible programs there. But I, before we get to Asana, I want to kind of rewind back. You know, you've, you've been in HR most of your career. You've seen a variety of, of senior kind of top people leadership roles during that time. What initially drew you to HR? Uh, you know, it's funny, I get this question a lot, and I, I don't think anyone is grows up and say, says, when I grow up, I want to be an HR person or a people ops person. Like, who has ever said that? Zero yeah, people. Yeah, zero people. 
My first, the, the real story is that after, I co- after college, I traveled around the world for a couple of years and just took advantage of the fact that I was young and willing to, um, <laughs> willing to sleep just about every, everywhere or anywhere and, and explore different cultures. And, and when then that wrapped up, I ended up in San Francisco and I started my job search. And, you know, when you've never had a job and you don't know what you want to do, it's, you know, your criteria in terms of looking is is really limited. You actually don't even know how to assess. And I, I remember it pretty clearly. I had three job opportunities given to me. I had three offers in, in one week. And it was, like I said, it was the late 90s. And it was a heyday of the internet in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. I ended up... Uh, joining, uh, uh, working for a man and joining a company based solely on the fact that I thought he would, I wanted to follow him. He seemed really impressive. He, um, he was a rigorous interviewer. I, I believed in his vision. I believed in his leadership and I, I as much as, as I could. And I started out doing everything. I mean, I was part HR, part recruiting, part, um, like legal. I, I coordinated the board meetings. I was his assistant. Sometimes I sat at the front desk. I definitely paid all the bills. Like I did everything. And we were a 10 person startup. You know, we eventually grew that, um, that company to 300 people and, um, bit by bit parts of my job got quote unquote taken away. And, um, you know, the, the interesting part of the story, you know, when it got taken away because different, more people were hired and, and, you know, we, we started building these functions. And I still remember at one point he said to me, you know, you can do, you, you've really added a lot of value here. You're early in career. You actually get to do whatever you want. Tell me what you want to do. And I was like, <laughs> I still, I was like, Oh, I want to do corporate development. And he ah. laughed He said, why do you want to do corporate development? And I said, well, it just seems like there's smart people over there doing smart stuff. Like, I just want to go be with them. (laughs) And he laughed, not with me, but at me. He truly laughed at me. He said, don't be an idiot. He said, you're really good at this HR stuff. And it comes naturally to you. And you're having tremendous impact. Like, do do the things in life that, that bring you joy and that you're good at. All of the success will happen after that. It will naturally follow. And I said, but John... I, whenever I go to a party and I tell people that I work in HR, they roll their eyes. I don't, I don't want to work in a function that people roll their eyes at. That just doesn't feel good. And, you know, so we had a set of conversations, but I said, okay, well, you know what, I'll try it. I'll, I'll see how it goes. And eventually, you know, I built the capability. I, got better at it. I moved to another company. I got mentorship from other people that were not in HR, but that believed in the function. And I, you know, bit by bit, I, I built my capability and my strength there. And eventually I just shifted. And I, I said, I, I don't see a lot of people in the function at that time that I looked up to that I felt like would really teach me something. And um, it felt a little bit lonely and it felt, it was like, just it hurt my ego to have people roll their eyes. But I, eventually I shifted and I just said, like, I actually really love this work. I believe in its impact. It's, um, I actually think it's what I'm, um, what I'm good at. So maybe I can just do it. And then eventually I can be one of those people that other people that are starting their careers can look to and say, I want to be like that. And it's, I, I can't tell you how, um, 
uh, gratifying it is to be able to do work that you feel like you were meant to be doing and to have impact on human beings and on businesses. I feel like an ocean of um, good fortune and very, very blessed. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the story about the kind of cocktail party and people rolling their eyes because I've heard that analogy, you know, before. And I think that it it is, if you look at kind of legacy personnel, uh, there absolutely is that stigma. But what's what's so exciting, and I think you, you certainly are, are very much immersed in the space, and I think a leader in the space, is when you look at kind of next generation people practices, it's a very different function. The capabilities are very different. The impact is very different. And, and with that, the respect is very different. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely come a long way since, uh, you know, the days when I think people looked at the function and just just kind of, you know, did not want anything to do with it. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think you see it in a lot of places, right? Like I, um, I get as many requests for sort of um, to pick my brain, quote unquote, from up and coming HR people as I do from uh, founders and CEOs who are, who are invested in scaling their culture and want some advice on how to do that. I like, I, I think that, that, um, you know, we happen to live here in Silicon Valley and we are work, I work at places that are fast growing. So the investment in the culture and the, and the, the function is really elevated here, but I think it's, it's only going one direction and I, I believe in it. Yeah. And so for you, I mean, you've over the last 10 years, you've had leadership roles, HR executive roles in, in a variety of companies, and you've had kind of a front row seat into the evolution of that role, whether it's, you know, and this is much broader than just title from, you know, CHRO to chief people mm-hmm. officer, head of people. Like when you think of how your role and not your role specifically at Asana, but just the role of a CPO has evolved over the last five years, what's different? Well, I think, um, first of all, I think that the, the biggest difference is that um, if you, there's three different ways to think about the, the work, the, the people related work or the culture related work, right? There is the, Hey, I can, inv- I, I'm trying to get products market fit, or I'm trying to get a product to market, or I'm trying to get from, you know, five to 20 million in revenue. I can't really focus on culture and values and people. I am, I have to focus on these things and I have to focus on fundraising, right? And that stuff is a distraction. So me as a CEO, I'm going to outsource that either to a head of people or to somebody else. Then there is the other type of CEO who says, you know what? It's, it's, it's not a distraction. We can actually balance the two. We can spend time building the business and we can spend time building the culture. And um, the thing that I think is more true today than ever, and is 100% true at Asana, and one of the reasons that I originally came and that I feel like I'm thriving here, is this concept that it's that that, that is a false trade-off. It is right. actually your investment in culture and your commitment to defining and making the values real that will drive your business success and ultimately enable you to achieve your mission. And it's not either or, and it's not a balance. It one drives the other, and I, um, I think that there's the, the one of the big evolutions for me in the role is that people that shift in perception on the work of culture building and culture evolving that that has driven that change, um, and that is not the role that. That is, it's not the sole role of the chief people officer. It right. is, it's a, like an all team sport. 
you know, and at, at Asana, I experience it at the board level where they want to know what we're doing to evolve our culture. So the leadership team, if you look at our weekly um, leadership team meeting, I would say 50% of the topics are either people or culture related. Every employee here feels like they are participating in evolving the culture. And so my job is as an orchestrator of that, but not, and I don't feel like I'm in a room in the corner thinking about culture. Yeah, well, you know, that's such a great point, because I think if you look at the, the CPO role today and whatever title you know, it may go by, to me, I think it's one of the most dynamic and frankly difficult positions in the C-suite, because the reality is, is the role and the, and the function has evolved and the expectations, especially in leading organizations, has evolved. You, know, you have to have a, a business acumen and a financial acumen that is you know, on par with your CFO. You have to understand the sales and revenue on par with the, the chief revenue officer. You have to understand the marketing strategy and brand positioning. And then you have to tie all those things with the organizational strategy back to the people strategy and drive that. It's so complex and multifaceted that is just, I think, is evolved you know, far beyond what a traditional head of HR was, you know, again, even five, five years ago. I totally, I totally agree. And not only do you need to understand those things, right? And I think of, so I think of myself as a business person who happens to be having impact on the business through this function called people operations. So in order to be successful, not only do I need to understand those components of the business, but I actually need to really care and be interested in them, <laughs> right? And, right? Like I, I need to engage and think about them, um, and think about how our people strategy supports and partners with them. Uh, you know, one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite, one of my common interview questions for people ops people that come here to Asana, and this is a pro tip, but they need to be able to explain to me the business model of the companies that they've been at, mm. how those companies make, what the model is, how they make money, what the gross margins are, what the risks are, who the competitors are, what the growth rates are. And I'm not talking about like headcount growth rates. I'm talking about revenue growth rates. Right. And if you don't know that, I don't know how you can really build people programs to enable the company to achieve its mission. Wow, well, that's that's actually a great question, and I and I hope some of your uh, future team uh, members are listening to this podcast and come prepared for that question because that. Uh, but you're right. I think from a from a business operations standpoint, that's a quick way of gauging how tuned in they are to the business, as opposed to just their their yeah. domain. So let's uh let's dig more into Asana. So you've been kind of leading the people ops team there for the last three years. Um, for listeners who may not be familiar with Asana, if you could just give a brief overview of, of what the company does and then kind of how it's grown during the past three years. Sure. So Asana is a work management platform and it helps teams collaborate more effortlessly. Um, everything from like huge projects to small tasks. Um, people, you know, our customers include large banks and manufacturing companies to small mom and pop flower shops that need to coordinate delivery. I actually also use it to run my own household with my uh, roommate slash husband to make sure that all the things get done from, you know, the chores to the, um, the vacations to the child drop-offs and pickups. Uh, So that's what Asana does. I've been here for about three and a half years. When I joined, we were 125 people. We are now 600 people. We started, when I started, we had about 10,000 paying customers. Now we're over 70,000. And we've grown from one office, our headquarters in San Francisco, to seven offices globally. 
Uh, and so from a people operations standpoint, what does your team look like? Like what is it, what, how are you kind of established to support that, uh, those, that kind of employee base and that growth? Sure. So we'll kind of go from left to right. Uh, you can imagine a whiteboard that I'm drawing. It starts with recruiting. And to me, the recruiting function is, um, uh, the size of the recruiting function is purely a function of how many people you have to recruit, right? Like, yeah. like what, what's your headcount growth? What's your attrition? How do you map that? And um, our recruiting includes um, uh, functional recruiting, so technical and business recruiting. It includes a sourcing team and a, a talent research team, operations, and then a candidate experience team. Then I also have um, a diversity and inclusion person who has a lot of dotted line people, and we can talk a little bit about that um, a little bit later in the podcast. The third is just the ops of people ops, so compensation, operations, compliance, um, all of the um, all the analytics, and that's a, a significant team. Then we have what we call a growth and impact team. A lot of people might call this the HR business partners and um, talent development. We we call it growth and impact because we think it allows people to grow and increase their impact. And then I have somebody that runs organizational strategy. This is um, at Asana the annual plan the annual planning process or the the mechanism by which we come up with our annual plan, the financial plan, the the objectives and the roadmap and how that all fits together. That's run out of my team. And so I've got a woman that runs that. Um, and then I have an employee communications person who um, just makes sure supports employee engagement by thinking about what are we what are we saying to employees? How are we connecting that to what we're saying externally? Um, you know, runs all of the all hands, all of that. Got it. And so, uh, you know, over the last three and a half years, obviously you've uh, you, you've definitely jumped in size. When you're kind of going through that scale process, how do you what do you do differently? How do you adjust your you know people programs when you're in that kind of hyper growth scaling mode to support sure. it? Well, I'll just say like a, a few things that we've done um, just to be practical, and then maybe you can figure out a way to weave it together. So, right. uh, <laughs> that's your job, right? That's my job. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we recently did is we we looked at our work in DNI, and we said there's really a recruiting element of it, and then there's an inclusion element of it once people are in the door. Sure. And we looked at what a lot of companies do. And, you know, typically there's a DNI team and it sits either, you know, inside of recruiting or it sits inside of people operations. Sometimes it sits in a couple other places. But, you know, one of the things that I, I looked at is, is these two activities or these two pieces of work, the recruiting and the inclusion are very, very different. And it, particularly the recruiting piece, recruiting is a craft and it is, um, it is a specialized craft. It's not a, um, and it's very different from the work that you do in inclusion. And we said, 
really what it makes sense is to take the recruiting portion of the DNI work and embed it more deeply into the recruiting team. I think a lot of recruiters who frankly have such difficult jobs see while they emotionally um, and spiritually support the um, the concepts behind the diversity recruiting, they it can feel like, oh my gosh, this is making my life more difficult. And what we wanted to do is move the recruiting responsibilities around building a diverse workforce more intimately into recruiting and really closer to the hiring manager and make it a core part of their work. So we've recently split that out and we happen to have an amazing head of recruiting who wants this work to be core to her team's efforts. And so now our head of DNI is an advisor to that recruiting work, but isn't she's not a recruiter and she's not a recruiting professional at all. So she really focuses you know, 90% of her energy on the inclusion work and just provides advisory work to the recruiting team on this their work. Right. This has had a powerful impact in terms of making people, both recruiters and hiring managers, feel like it's a deeper part and it's more um, innate to their everyday work as opposed to this separate thing. Yeah, well, I think that's important because a lot of organizations approach diversity. A, they over-index on the recruiting side. I think so mm-hmm. it's about uh, acquisition of talent. They don't focus as much on the inclusion and, and kind of integration and development of talent. Um, but the other pieces, I think they're they're so focused there that they they kind of view that as an add-on thing. It's not really mm-hmm. integrated into how they operate and how they mm-hmm. behave, and and you know extending through the recruiting team into the hiring teams because ultimately mm-hmm. that's got to be woven all the way through. So it's interesting to hear you kind of map out how you've built that. Um, if you if you kind of go in the other direction, so that there's lots of uh, kind of conversation around the things that you you need to do and what are kind of ideal practices when you're in growth and scale mode. Um, but there's also oftentimes a lot of mistakes and, and you come about sure. those learnings sometimes through uh, missteps. So when, when you think about your own kind of path building there, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, what might you have done differently? Yeah, <laughs> I have a few things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think when you when you first start out, when, like really, really in the early days, your CEO or your founders spend 50 to 75% of their time building the team. Yeah. You know, they, they just do pitch after pitch after pitch, whether it is to a potential candidate today or tomorrow, whether it is to an investor, whether it is to a customer, you know, I, I think it's like 90% of their time is spent pitching and man, much of that time is spent pitching to candidates. Then you shift to like the next step is, you know, you've got a little recruiting team and you've got some hiring managers. And um, we, like many companies, the, the MO was we're just going to hire as many great people as possible, as quickly as possible. You know, what's right. the strategy? What's the approach? No, like we're just that's what we're going to do. And then you shift to a more, you know, like an um a professionalized recruiting function that frankly looks a lot like a sales function. You have candidate marketing, you have a headcount plan, you map that headcount plan to resourcing, whether it's number of recruiters or number of hiring managers, you also map it to what is the number of interviews that we need, phone interviews and onsite interviews, you know, you, you have a funnel, what is the close rate that you can anticipate and let's build from there. Yeah, as part of that transition, you move from kind of a transactional relationship between recruiting and hiring managers to a deeper partnership that is really like a longer term talent partnership. I would say 
if, um, if I were to do it again, I would have driven and directed that shift earlier. It is, it's the type of thing, it, it's just the type of thing that, you know, a month or a quarter can slip by and your, your head can't, you know, your, if you're growing rapidly and your headcount is growing and your revenue is growing, the game gets bigger real, real fast. And recruiting is a contact sport in the Bay Area. It's incredibly competitive, you know, for talent, but also for recruiting leaders. Yeah. And if I were to do it again, I would have invested there earlier, which which might have meant breaking some eggs earlier, frankly. Um, but that took it, it took me longer to do that than it should have, and it was it was a mistake. You know, I think, you know, you, you touch on a point that I think a lot of you know people in the recruiting pay, space will recognize and kind of relate to it's, it's, there's a difference between a transactional recruiter who's just focused on bringing people in the door and, mm -hmm. and a real talent advisor, right. Who, who has the, the trust and the relationship with the hiring managers and can influence, and, you know, they're still a great recruiter, so they're still great at identifying talent and, and getting talent excited and bringing them in. But they mm -hmm. also have that kind of that deep understanding of the departments they support and the teams they support and the leaders they support. So they could really, when it's time to, you know, influence around a candidate, you know, maybe maybe a hiring manager didn't see something in the background, but the recruiter yeah. did. And they can really say, look, I know, you know, you're looking for something with X, but trust me. You need to really, you know, consider this person because of, and and that carries weight. That's a that's a huge difference than kind of transactional recruiters that are just kind of flipping over resumes and profiles. Absolutely, and I I think um, in reflecting on my work uh, for this chat, um, one of the things I'm most proud of with our people ops team at Asana is that I am now actually, you know, obviously I lead the team, but in some situations I show up as a client of the team. So yeah. I'm my recruiting, the, the person who runs recruiting for people ops sits down with me on a monthly basis and asks me, has, you know, has a series of questions about like, what's keeping you up at night? Let's look at your calendar. What are you spending time on? What are your monthly priorities? And they're asking those questions because the, those things will hit, give hint to them of what I'm going to come and say, I need to recruit for X, Y, and Z. So she will sometimes come and she says, you know, three months ago, you talked about this. Is this still a problem for you or have you solved it? And when I say, when I say to her, Hey, and now we're going to hire for this. She's like, yeah, I figured that based on our last conversation. So I've right. already got a plan for how we might approach that here. What do you think about this? And it's, it's amazing, right? Um, it is that that's not transactional at all. The, she's asking me questions to, and, and gleaning in between the lines of what she can anticipate and then doing the work without me even being involved to prepare for that. That to me is like deep partnership and anticipatory work that I, I'm so happy that our leaders here have the benefit of. Yeah, well, it's again, when you have that kind of intuitive relationship where you can, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as I say, kind of see around corners of what's coming and actually, you know, get to where your mind is going before it's even there, like that's yeah. invaluable. Like you just can't, you know, you can't put a price tag on, on that level of, uh, of capability and service. Um, one of the things I want to spend a little bit more time with you on is I know that, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion and belonging has been a big part of your people strategy at Asana. And, you know, you take a holistic approach 
that really centers around three pillars of, of build, recruit, and thrive. And I'm curious, you know, you, you've done a variety of work in this space, but if you had to zero in on kind of one, uh, one initiative, one program, one approach that you felt has been most impactful uh, at Asana, what do you think that would be? Uh, great question. I'm a politician in training, so you asked me for one, I'm gonna give you three. I'll take three. Um, So first of all, I want to talk about compensation. Yeah. You know, tying this to your earlier question of like things that we've evolved, you know, early days in a startup and Asana is no different. Compensation is kind of done ad hoc. Like each group does it in a slightly different way. Each manager might do it in a slightly different way. And there is some data and there's some, you know, like, um, uh, best efforts made, but it you know compensation changes happen all over the place, all over the year, with very little rationalization, very little budget, very little um, analysis. And one of the things that we've we've really overhauled, it, we we did this in my first year here, is we we put some structure around that. First of all, we like mapped the jobs, we created a leveling system, we. Um, uh, bought some more robust data. We put in systems where compensation was reviewed at a cadence where uh, where all people were reviewed together multiple times a year. Um, and that, I think, uh, it gave managers greater confidence in the decisions that we were making. The analysis and structure around it ensured that we were making more equitable decisions and that you could compare apples to apples in a more meaningful way. I think, you know, a lot of people look at sort of some of that more wonky operational stuff as like, it's not about culture, but it is actually everything about culture. And it ensures, you know, part of people making sure that everyone can thrive is making sure that you're paying people appropriately and that you can explain why you're paying them what that you are paying them. And you know, traditionally or historically, or um, I would say naturally, that is where some people get screwed. And putting structure around that is a really important step that you can take to ensure that 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 you're thriving. The second thing that I want to talk about is our Real Talk series. And this is a series of events that is done in partnership between diversity and inclusion and our events team that are some are internal events and some are external events and they they are just that they are real talk what's you know some things that we've done in the past include what's it like to be the only female engineering manager in an ocean of men what's it like to be black in america what is the true immigrant experience so some of these um and some of these are done in partnership with other companies. And so we'll have um, people from other companies. Some of them are just Asana employees, but any, like the, the talk is real and it's not always pretty, but it is, it really gives people an insight and it, it allows people to demonstrate both the courage and vulnerability to talk about these things publicly. And it's, it's an education opportunity for people. uh, And it, it helps drive a sense of belonging for all of us. 
So the third thing, um, and this is connect, you know, uh, over half of our employees are members of at least one employee resource group at Asana. And it's an active, um, vibrant part of our community here. One of the things I think a lot of companies uh, have gone this route of creating ERGs and of making them uh, sort of uh, front and center to their inclusion work. One of the things that we've done in the last year is said, is look to professionalizing that work. I think especially whether it's our ERG participation, but more importantly, ERG leadership, right? Like each one of our ERG has two leaders. And I, I was just feeling that people saw this as sort of like work along the side or extracurricular work or, you know, nobody like it was just something that you did after hours. And it was like, you know, nice to have. And one of the things that we wanted to do was shift it to be really more core to your work. So we did a number of things to professionalize our ERGs. We ran a recruitment process for to identify and assess and select the leaders. We engaged managers to say, this is a wonderful opportunity. You should, you should look for people up and coming, like rising stars in your organization. And this is an opportunity to give them a career opportunity. We got buy-in from the most senior leadership to allow, allow to support um, you know, 20% of their time going to this ERG work. We built a year-long set of capability trainings that would help those ERG leads be successful in their role, but also give them skills that would be success- allow them to be successful after their ERG commitment ended and, and would allow them to grow their career. So we really did a lot to try to, we increased the, their budgets. We taught them how to use those budgets and how to think about connecting those budgets to the strategic goals of the ERG. I think making this, um, investing in the leadership there and professionalizing it sent a message to the whole company. This isn't like this little thing on the side. This is core. Right. Well, and I think, you know, building it the way you did kind of instills almost an entrepreneurial sense within each of the groups to to right. you know, kind of drive them in the direction that they see fit as opposed to kind of the company saying, okay, well, here's a thing. And we're, you know, I, the, the approach that some companies take, it, it does, it just feels like it's additional thing that, um, you know, isn't always genuine. And so I, yeah. I think kind of hearing how you've built it that way, I, I could see how that would connect. And obviously having, you know, more than half of your employees involved in ERG speaks to the, the impact it's having. You know, when you think about the, the, the conversation, I think, especially when you think about 21st century in HR, you know, modern HR, legacy HR, I think the conversation was really focused around diversity, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it almost it almost framed it as if it's this transaction. And, and I think that the conversation now, especially for modern companies, is really more focused on inclusion and belonging. And, and I'm curious mm-hmm. for you, you know, how do you how do you go about measuring the impact of these programs? How do you how do you get a handle on kind of how this is impacting the the sense of belonging within Asana? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think about it in a few different ways. There are some quantitative and some qualitative ways that we can measure belonging. We do engagement surveys uh, three times a year. We have somewhere between 90 and 95% of Asanas participate in our engagement survey. So it's not a representative sample. It's like a whole, it's a, whole view. Right. Uh, so obviously 
uh, we have a number of questions in there about uh, that that uh, speak to belonging. We are able to uh, to a certain degree slice and dice that data to understand where the senses of where the sense of belonging is across different demographic groups, and that is a, a pretty uh, crystal clear mirror to us about yeah. about belonging. But there are also, um, uh, we look at exit interview surveys and um, try to glean information from there. And we do more qualitative or sort of personal interview type things to get a sense of it. So the ERG leads will give us a pulse of it on a quarterly basis. You know, we actually had one group that the engagement survey scores were pretty low and our head of inclusion pulled that pulled everyone from that um, minority group together for a lunch and essentially said, are you willing to share with me your ideas on what we could do better? And uh, of the 15 people she invited, 14 attended, including one that was on parental leave who got on the phone because they were so interested in participating in the topic. They were positive, they were constructive, they were engaged, and they were specific. And um, she brought that to the leadership team and said, I'm going to make some changes and I need your support. Oh, well, I think when you when you have that environment where everybody is that comfortable um, you know, giving that real feedback, you know, because obviously w w without it, without having an environment where employees feel safe to have that level of candor and really kind of give specific direction and examples of what you can do to, to make them feel kind of more integrated and, and part of, and, and, you know, kind of belonging within the organization. I think that, uh, that that's hugely important and not all companies get that, you know, so I think, I think they struggle with it because they don't, for one, just have an environment where, where it does have a strong sense of belonging and people feel like they can raise their perspectives and they won't just be heard, but they'll be acted on. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that we do in onboarding on day one, we have a certain goals for day one. Um, and one of the goals is to make sure that people understand that it is, there's not only an opportunity, but there's an expectation of every employee to participate in co-creating the culture. And we give them very specific app. We don't tell them how to do it. They, we really encourage them to look for ways to do that themselves. But we outline like half a dozen ways that they can do it that, you know, from the light, medium to hardcore. Um, but we, we think you know, one of the most common comments on our engagement survey is, wow, I'm amazed at how well our culture is scaling. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what the leadership <laughs> is doing. The, the employees right. are doing this. All I'm doing is creating reasonable and authentic avenues for people to engage in scaling our culture. And from there, it takes off. Yeah. So you're saying you don't own the culture as the, uh, the head of people. That's, uh, that, know, that, that's shocking. Well... I, um, uh, look, I'm an orchestrator, yeah. I'm a facilitator. I, I've got the, what do you, what is the conductor that has a little baton with the symphony? I don't know. Oh, really yeah. that. yeah. But that's different than owning it. If it's, if, if you put the responsibility for, um, owning the culture on one human being, that's not scalable. I, you know, we've got 15 people in an office in Sydney. We've got four people in an office in Tokyo. I need every single one of those individuals 
I, I can't be there every day. I need every one of those individuals to feel like that they have full responsibility for participating in the culture just the way that I feel this responsibility. And only with that. Now, I need to shape it. I need to give them um, swimming lanes or guardrails. Sure. I need to help people understand how um, what the priorities are and how the culture drives the business. But if you do that and you do it well and you do it until you are exhausted and blue in the face, good things will happen because people step up. Yeah, well, you're right, and I, I, you know, I kind of mentioned that in, in jest about uh, owning it. I think that there, there's this, uh, this, this perception that maybe just ties back again to more legacy HR, where they're like, oh yeah, you know, HR owns culture, and that's, you know, that's BS. Like, you can be a conductor, you can try to create programs in place that, uh, that allow employees to thrive, and obviously that enables culture, but you know, they don't own the culture, and they don't, you know, they're not solely responsible for the culture, and so I think. To me, that is, is certainly one of the core aspects of, of 21st century HR. And I'm curious to get your perspective. You know, when you think about 21st century HR, modern HR, how would you define it? That is a good question. Um, we could talk for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk for an hour. Look, to me, uh, this concept that your investment in the culture drives your business results and enables you to achieve your mission. That is, that to me is ever is that twenty first century HR. That is, that's my north star. Yeah, that is, that is everything. Um, I guess I will also say, uh, relatedly, I think that at the end of the day, there's a lot of conversation about what drives engagement. I've come to believe through my work at Asana that there are two things that drive engagement over and above everything else. The first is, does my work matter? And am I working on stuff that matters, right? Like, and those right. are, the, those use some of the same words, but they mean different things, right? Yeah. How can I connect the work that I'm doing up to the bigger project or up to the bigger objective? And how does that objective connect to the company's strategy and ultimately allow us to achieve our mission? When I'm, when I'm putting in that one extra hour or I'm trying to figure out how to um, prioritize between two tasks that seem equally important, but I only have time for one of them, how do I, how do I connect it? And does it really matter? Um, and so for us at Asana, we have the beauty of the product and the, you know, we have something called the pyramid of clarity, which allows us to connect tasks to projects, to objectives, to the mission. And, and like I said earlier about making yourself blue in the face in terms of helping people see how their work connects to the broader picture, that is a, a fundamental driver of employee engagement, which in turn allows employees to increase their impact. The second thing I think that is the fundamental driver of engagement is belonging. Our, you know, I might not look and feel and smell like everyone else around me, but am I in an environment where my voice is heard, where I can mostly be my own, my full self, where I, I, it's okay to show vulnerability? And we've invested tremendously here in exactly that, trying to create that sense of belonging, part of which is uh, ensuring that expressing vulnerability is a core leadership trait that is not only allowed, but encouraged, 
celebrated and held to account for. Right. Those two things, like I think that's the modern workplace um, and 21st century HR are enabling those two things and making them alive always, not be, not just because they're the right things to do, but because they will help your organization achieve its mission. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you touched on vulnerability because I think that is such an important um distinction around modern leadership in general, but I think especially even at the, at the CPO and CHRO level, because I think historically that, that role was often, uh, you know, in some organizations siloed away and other organizations, you know, just kind of viewed by employees as robotic, or you don't want to interact with that person. They, they can't relate to your needs. And what I'm seeing more and more of, and obviously you mentioned this and I've seen this with you and many others is that leaders are being able to be more vulnerable and show up who they are. And and I think relate and connect with their employees in ways that legacy HR executives couldn't because they see them as going through similar things, experiencing similar challenges, uh, you know, having developmental needs in certain areas. They don't have to have all the answers. They don't have to be perfect. And I think that that is, and they're okay with that. And that's actually encouraged. And I think employees and ultimately organizations can connect so much better with that kind of leadership because they can just relate in ways that I think they couldn't to kind of models of HR executives in the past. Yeah. It's, um, it's a much nicer way to work. It's much, it makes coming to work (laughs) joyful. Yeah. I mean, that's who, who wants to be able to leave the majority of themselves at the door when they show up, like that's exhausting. it's so fascinating to me, and it really didn't um, because it, it came into such crystal, crystallization for me at Asana because you know I spent most of my career in and you know enterprise software, high ASP, like very male dominated in environments, and I don't mean male dominated in terms of like that there's a lot of men, but just like the energy is really male. Right. And I, I, I in reflection, I realized that a lot of the conversations and the meetings that I would go into, I'd go into like with like, as if I was like ready for a knife fight. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like my stance was like ready to fight. And I had my, you know, I had my business case and I, I was ready to be forceful and make my case and convince people and like, really like bring it. Uh, And, and oftentimes those with the most forceful energy won, right? Like they won. And sometimes the people with the loudest voices or the people who yelled the most won. And it was really um, a profound shift to come into a place where it's like, hey, let's start by getting um, grounded that we're all on the same page and we're all on the same team. We might actually be on the same page, but we're on the same team and we have the same goal to get to the best outcome. And we have different experiences and those experiences influence our opinions, but um, reasonable people can disagree and let's be open and curious to uh, points of view that are not our own. That is, that is, um, that is profoundly different. Yeah. And, and on the last question I want to cover with you is the, you, you mentioned kind of at the beginning of the podcast, you know, an aspiration of, of being the, the leader that people that are up and coming to space can kind of look to for inspiration and mm-hmm. for, for a way to work. And, and I, I think you've certainly become that, but I'm curious from your perspective, when you think about, the people who inspire you in the industry, people who you look to for, um, you know, inspiration, ideas, people that you just think are, are leading the industry forward. What, what leaders come to mind for you? 
Um, great question. I so I, I guess I'll give you a few answers. The first, like I find myself increasingly inspired by the people that I was hoping to inspire. These like <laughs> younger up and coming folks who just their paradigm is just it's different and their assumptions are different and they come at it with a completely different point of view. And you know, I, I recently went to a, a round table on benefits and how fast-growing companies were uh, looking at benefits. And I, I have to tell you real real talk, I don't spend a lot of time on benefits. I've got an ops team. They look at it. I, I think about it maybe two or three times a year. But I, I specifically wanted to go because I wanted to get just one click closer to it and see what was happening in the marketplace so that I wasn't to sort of unblock myself from my, like, everything, all the experience that I had had and, you know, all the assumptions. And it was amazing. I was in a room with people who had been in the workforce for three or four years and had just completely different points of view about what the the role of a company is in supporting uh, the health and well-being of employees. And I, I actually think we do an amazing job here at Asana, but it was just so inspiring to see like um, uh, the leapfrogging that was happening with, from some of these younger folks. So that's uh, definitely inspiring. Um the second thing that I'm inspired by is some of these, uh, you know, founder CEOs who are five, 10, 50 people, you know, just working on product market fit and who care so deeply about this, uh, about this work and are hungry to be better at it and are actively investing time to educate themselves. That's pretty cool. That's, um, yeah. you know, if, if I look back 10 years ago, a lot of the um, VCs that I know who really did already believe in culture and, and its differentiating power, they would call me and ask me to go talk to one of their CEOs to convince the CEO that culture mattered. <laughs> uh, and like, that's not happening now. These CEOs are coming to me directly saying, this really matters. Please, please give me some time. So that's pretty cool. Um, the last thing, and, and this is a, a pretty easy answer, but um, and I, I've said it before, you know, Dustin Moskovitz is the founder and CEO of Asana. And I got to tell you, I have learned more about mindfulness, equanimity, and being truly open and curious to opinions that are different from your own, from that man, than I, I think that I've, I've learned in my life. Wow. That's uh, I think having that, having that relationship. I mean, the, the the relationship between a head of people and a CEO is so important. But particularly, like the things you're talking about aren't necessarily work things. They're not business things. They're nope. they're life things. And I think that that just that is transformative. Yeah. Well, Anna, I really appreciate you making time to come on the uh, podcast and share your wisdom. I I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. So thanks so much for making time. Thanks, Lars. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.